Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Loved by generations worldwide, Little Women is a universal coming-of-age story. Set against the backdrop of the Civil War, the story follows sisters Joe, Meg, Beth, and Amy March on their journey from childhood to adulthood. With the help of their mother, Marmee, and while their father is away at war, the girls navigate what it means to be a young woman, from sibling rivalry and first love to loss and marriage. Here's a short sound clip from a new three-part adaptation of Louise Malakot's classic novel, which is coming soon to PBS. Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents. Joe, get up off the rug. That party dress is in a bad enough state as it is. We agreed not to have any presents this year. We said we didn't mind as long as we had Marmy and Father and each other. Beth, we haven't got Father and we shan't have him forever such a long time. Not until the war ends. Meg! I found Joe's gloves. They're all creased and sticky. I used them to mop up some lemonade I spilled at Sally's birthday dance. Joe, why didn't you clean them? You can't go to a party without any gloves. I was hoping we wouldn't be invited to another one. <laughs> I should have gone away with father in disguise. Signed up as a drummer boy and done my duty as he has. This a new three-part adaptation of Little Women uh, premieres soon on PBS. You can watch it in Utah on KUD Channel 7 starting on Sunday, May 13th at 7 p.m. My guest for the hour today is writer Heidi Thomas, who adapted the novel for television for this adaptation. We'll talk about the enduring themes of the novel, which Thomas calls as complex as Middlemarch. We'll also talk about Call the Midwife, the popular series on which Thomas is the writer and executive producer. And we're going to talk about other adaptations Heidi Thomas has done of classics such as Cranford and Madame Bovary. You can do a lot more with three hours, can't you, than a, I, I think than a feature length? I think that was a beautiful thing, because quite often, um, I think more often than not, Little Women has been done to a feature-length adaptation. And in actual fact, Little Women, as we all know, it is really two novels. It's Little Women and Good, Good Wives. The story is actually quite complex and multi-layered. It's about four sisters, not just about Joe. And I think sometimes in feature-length adaptations, um, the emphasis, because the whole story has to be narrowed down, the emphasis perhaps falls on Joe unduly, and it becomes Joe's story, whereas certainly in the original novels, it very much begins as being about all four sisters. But um, in actual fact, um, it homes in on Joe rather than being just about Joe from the very beginning. So I like to think that we've, um, that we've redressed that by having the three hours in which to tell the story. So Little Women, very well known. Good Wives, not as, not as well known, maybe? Um, I think people don't often don't appreciate that it is two novels. Um, they're often bound together in a single volume um, with the title Little Women on the cover. But Good Wives is actually the seminal second half of the story, really, in which we see Meg marry, we see Beth die, um, we see Amy travel in Europe, and we see Joe meet her husband whilst disengaging from Laurie, who has been the definitive relationship of her life. So I think it's interesting that those are the key points to many people of the Little Women story, but they're actually from a novel called Good Wives. Mm. Um, I was reading elsewhere, you were reminding us that many young girls, it's mostly girls, I, I would imagine, um, get exposed to Little Women uh, in an abridged version. And so what we, they, so they haven't really read the, the full novel. Mm. Yes, I think that's a very interesting point, Tom, because certainly I was given the novel at the age of either eight or nine, I don't know which, uh, by my mother, and it was the unabridged version. And I think 
I continually reread the novel as a teenager, as a young woman, perhaps again in my 30s. And even though I had read the unabridged novel, I'd always approached it from the point of view of my childish recollection, through a child's eyes, if you will. And I think many people have that experience. And as you say, a lot of people are given the, the story in an, in an abridged version, which I wasn't myself, so I'm not familiar with what is usually left out for a childish audience. I think it's just a matter of often of making it shorter and simpler and less likely to overwhelm um, the childish reader. But I think many people, for that reason, slightly underestimate the complexity and indeed the darkness of the novel. It has some very, very sad elements. Um, for example... You know, it, it is a well-known fact that Beth dies, so I don't think I'm giving any spoilers there. But when I reread the novel with a view to adapting it for television as a mature woman in my 50s, I was very, very struck by the beautiful and very detailed and layered depiction of a family's grief in the wake of a great bereavement. And I very much wanted that to come you know, come forward and be part of my storytelling as I, as I dramatized the novel. You've uh, you've said I read uh, somewhere where you you said Little Women is as complex as Middlemarch. It is. I think what's interesting to compare the two um, is that they were written at much the same time in the mid to late 1860s. I think there were huge developments in the craft of the novel at that time, and I think there are very very clear points of comparison, such as um, a slightly unorthodox, very compelling um, central character. Um, some considerable interest in the, you know, the lives of women, the constraints society placed them under at that time. And of course, both novels were written by women, um, George Eliot being uh, the pseudonym of Marianne Evans, um, who was writing at the same time as Louisa May Alcott. I found it quite fruitful to compare the two. And I think every, every time I reminded myself of that, it encouraged me to look at women um, with in greater depth. Um, with even more respect than I had for it already. And always, always with love. I love that book so much. And um, I loved every minute of working on the script. Why do you, why do you love it so much? And you probably stand in for, for so many, I guess, a related question. Why has why this novel endured so long? Um, it's an inter- the question I get asked most often, often as an adapter of fiction, because I've done many classic novels in my time, is why are you doing this book now? It's as though the now, the contemporary experience, is the most important thing. To my mind, with Little Women, a story about young women finding their voices, their individual voices, their collective voice, and learning how to sing will never not be relevant. Um, Young women will always come of age. I think one of the remarkable things about Little Women is um, the story is set in in a very particular place at a very particular time in history, and yet it does endure because it's about love, it's about loss, it's about learning. All of those things remain relevant throughout the decades and the centuries of our human experience. One example of the universality is uh, I was reading um, that uh, when it aired on the BBC at Christmas time, right last year. Yes. Um, I, I guess some people said, "Why have they got American accents?" They just... <laughs> I know, I know. I I thought that was at once outrageous and rather delightful. It shows how people sort of embrace the novel and find themselves reflected in it. I know, for example, at um, Orchard House, which is the Alcott Museum in Concord, Massachusetts, there are a hugely international crowd visit constantly. Um, there are a great many Japanese fans, for example. And so I think 
part of its enduring genius is everybody sees themselves reflected in these sisters, regardless of of their actual sort of geographic positioning. And I certainly always knew it was an American novel. And I was very conscious when I took on the job of adapting it that I was taking on one of the great American novels. And I wanted to be sure that, um, you know, I did my correct historic research. I do a lot of period adaptations. And I just paid an extra amount of attention to detail. You know, things like researching the Civil War and making sure I knew exactly, you know, the speed at which the the war was unfolding in the background of the girls' lives. I had a kind of timeline of public events um, in parallel with private events. I felt it was very important to to express the American nature of the story and of those sisters. Uh, I guess as an American, I was uh, I kind of had the opposite uh, presumption that uh, w- would this really play elsewhere. In fact, I was c- kind of surprised when I saw. Okay, it was it was on BBC over Christmas time. I mean, I think, I suppose that's it. We, as nationals of of separate countries, we don't always appreciate how we're perceived by others, do we? Um, Certainly Little Women is so well known by young women and girls in Britain. Uh, My mother gave me her copy when I was telling my, you know, my obviously British friends, the people I see every day that I was doing Little Women, they would go, oh, I love that book. You know, it it is a, a fantastic thing. I think what actually worked very well for the production was the BBC does have a stellar and international reputation for dealing with literary and period works. So I think any book that's taken on by the BBC is in safe hands, um, whether it were to be an American book or you know, an Australian classic, perhaps, or a French classic. I've myself done an adaptation of Madame Bovary for the BBC. And, um, you know, I just think it's what the BBC does very well, because it's always done from a position of respect and celebration. Am I right? Uh, well, I I know I'm right. Let me ask you. <laughs> that's a bad that's a bad way to phrase it because I read this. But uh, you uh, you said I'm I'm not going to take this on unless Amy falls actually falls through the ice. Absolutely, that was the one condition I gave because um, the BBC wanted a fairly rapid turnaround. I'd already agreed to write the adaptation, but with a view to perhaps filming it in 2018. And the head of the BBC said we really need something to be a jewel at the heart of the Christmas schedule. And um, that would, you know, that meant me writing much more quickly than anticipated and shooting sooner than anticipated. So I, I realized that by agreeing it, to do it, I was in a position of strength and I just asked for one thing that really meant a great deal to me, which was that Amy falls through the ice. When I was a child of, I think, nine or ten, so perhaps a year or so after I originally read the novel, um, the BBC did an adaptation of Little Women. And in those days, there was a thing called the Sunday Tea Time Adaptation. That's the colloquial term for it. They were on early in the evening on Sundays and designed for a family audience. But they were made on a relatively low budget. And I was very excited to see this scene where Amy falls through the ice. I think as a young reader, it was very spectacular to me, and I was very much looking forward to it. And because of budgetary constraints, Amy merely fell into a shallow pond and got kind of wet up to her knees. And (laughs) at the age of nine or ten, I didn't understand about veracity in adaptive screen storytelling, but I knew when I'd been let down, and I didn't want anybody in the audience for this to have that experience. But I have to say, you've seen it now. I think the art department and our producer, Susie Liggett, did the most fantastic job, given that we filmed in Ireland in the middle of the summer. Um, I think you'd be hard-pressed 
not to know that, you know, hard-pressed to know that that was not um, a frozen lake. Yeah, they did it very well, and you, you are convinced that she's about to freeze to death. That's, so they did it very well. well. It, she was very cold, and yeah. in fact, when I saw Catherine Newton in New York last week, I, I was worried what she might say to me. I hadn't seen her since that scene was filmed, in actual fact. And she was blue with cold, because although it wasn't frozen water, it was Irish July water, which is almost as cold, it has to be said. I mean, she's blue, isn't she, in the shot? Mm, yeah. Her teeth are chattering. Yeah, it's very convincing. Uh, a very brave yeah. and talented young lady. Yeah. Um, so you, you've dealt with this a lot. You've, uh, you've become an adapter of, of work, sometimes very famous works. You, met, you mentioned Madame Bovary and now Little Women and, and some others, uh, Cranford. And, um, so what, uh, inevitably, even in three hours, you can't keep everything in, right? No, you can't. And I think that there is a, um, a terrible thing as, a, as an adapter for the screen, which is your adaptation of the book will always be written from a place of complete love and respect and indeed passion for, for the material. But by and large, you will be judged on not on what you include, but on what you leave out. And um, it's soul-destroying, really, because you make such careful choices about what to include. But I think my theory, and I've done, as you say, I've done Cranford, Madame Bovary, um, Ballet Shoes, which is a cult favorite in in Britain, almost as popular as Little Women. Um, another novel called I Capture the Castle, which again is a coming-of-age story. What you have to do is look at the novel and identify its sacred moments. What are the most important things in this story? What are the things that people will be heartbroken if they don't see played out? Um, for example, I mean, Amy falling into the lake, that was very important to me. Um, Amy and the Limes was very important to me. Um, Meg going to the ball and being dressed up in a, a slightly unsuitable gown and wearing makeup was very important. So very quickly I realized, um, you know, what were the most resonant moments in the novel. And then you also have to look at a structure for the piece. I was given three hours, which was an absolute gift and a godsend. Um, but obviously, two novels, Little Women and Good Wives, do contain an enormous amount of material. So I knew I'd have to thin it down. So the first thing I did was I came up with a thesis for how the drama was going to be structured over three hours. The first episode, in my mind, I called Childhood. And that's about the sisters that they're most optimistic and joyful and innocent, if you will. Um, episode two was... I called Challenge. Um, their father's dying in Washington. Their mother goes away to nurse him. There's trouble at school. Um, they're struggling to look after themselves. And then Beth becomes extremely ill. So part two is Challenge. And then episode three, I called in my mind Change, because it's about the family finding its feet in, in the as adults in the outer world. It's no longer so domestic. Joe goes to New York. Meg marries, but goes to live up the road in a separate house. Um, Amy goes to Europe and Beth leads home So um, by dying. And so everything is sort of spiraling and shifting out of control almost um, until we bring it home to a happy ending. So I looked at childhood challenge and change and focused on the most important um, bits of the novel that could contribute to those themes. So once I had a shape, it became much easier to make the choices. And I didn't feel, honestly, at the end of it, that there were any massive great losses. I do feel we managed to um, cover all the most important 
point to the story and also to give each of the four sisters a chance to shine. That was very important to me because I do feel the feature-length versions have perhaps been forced to make Joe the principal and only protagonist when, in actual fact, in, um, in the novel... Louisa Maricott sheds almost equal light on all four sisters in the early part of the novel, and only later does it become Joe's story. Those three themes are themes in the book, especially I'm thinking of change. Joe is, is several times talking about how she doesn't want things to change. Yes, and in the end, she almost changes the most. She's the one who breaks out of the home and goes to New York. And I think it's also to do with the girls and their attitude towards growing up. Jo is very afraid of losing her sisters to the adult world. Um, you know, that is always a preoccupation with her early on. Beth is terrified of growing up herself. She doesn't want to leave the premises of the home. She doesn't want to leave the situation in which she finds herself most comfortable, which is the home as a child. And um, But growing up is all about change, whether you like it or not. Um, you will either be forced to pursue it or it will happen to you. Change is what defines us. One of the, uh, and I think it does benefit uh, the, the time you're given and you're able to shine a light on all of all four sisters, not just Joe. I was particularly touched by, and you, you get this when you read the book, of course, you get this in some of the film adaptations, you really get it in this version, uh, Beth trying to conquer her fears, right? She's, <gasps> she's very fearful. I was very touched so by that. moving. I think what I would say is part of my, I found Beth's story all the more moving because I'm now a grown woman. I've raised a son. He's 21 now. And I was very struck, um, this is something I'm sure we'll move on to later in our conversation, about the depth and complexity of Mommy as a character and the anguish she seems to experience when Beth cannot cross the threshold of the outer world. I found very resonant as a mother, but I think I looked at Beth's, you know, Beth's shyness and how it was expressed, and I thought in the present day we would call this anxiety. Um, Louisa May Alcott actually refers to it in the text as Beth's infirmity. It is an illness. It's not just a quirk of personality. She cannot, she cannot exist in the world because she is too afraid of it. I found that very moving, and nowadays I think she would have a diagnosis. She might even have um, medication or th certainly therapy. And yet all she could do in the 1860s was try. And it's so hard to try to be better when you're in the grip of a... Of what is essentially a mental illness, certainly a quite an acute mood disorder, I think we'd call it now. And I just found Beth a very interesting and deeper character than I remembered, not least because of the struggle she has to conquer her anxieties and her fears in the early part of the novel. But so often I think it's a bit of a, a trope or almost a joke, oh, Beth dies. But her approach to her own death is so extraordinarily wise and knowing and complex and she is so concerned with how her parents will react to it that she in the novel knows that her parents are not accepting that she's dying and she quietly goes on this journey it's an extraordinary thing because i think as she approaches her death it's more the most courageous she has ever been and i found that profoundly moving and also beth's death is not just an end in itself as i think People who maybe don't haven't read the novel very recently assume it's the great high point. It's actually the beginning of a great deal of change in the family, which becomes positive. It leads to Joe's development as a serious writer. It 
sows the seeds of the romance between, or at least nurtures the flame, if you will, of the romance between Amy and Laurie. And it enables Meg to come to terms with her lot as a mother of small children. So her death is actually a very potent thing. And I think we don't, we don't feel it deeply enough if we don't fully appreciate Beth as a very rounded character from the outset. My guest for the hour today on Access Utah is writer Heidi Thomas. Uh, she wrote the adaptation for a new three-part uh, series on PBS of Louisa Ma- Alcott's uh, classic novel, Little Women. We'll have more on Little Women in the next segment. And in our final segment today, we'll talk with Heidi Thomas about the popular series Call the Midwife, on which uh, Heidi Thomas is writer and executive producer. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake Express, featuring daily shuttles to downtown Salt Lake and Salt Lake International Airport. Information on bookings available at saltlakeexpress.com. Hey, I'm Tom Power. The East Coast Music Awards, East Coast of Canada, one of the most important awards in Canadian music, took place over the weekend. Q was there for a live show from Halifax, Nova Scotia. You'll hear that show featuring some of the best musicians Atlantic Canada has to offer. It's coming up on Q from PRI or Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We are talking about a new three-part adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's classic novel, Little Women. It's coming soon to PBS. You can view it uh, here in Utah on KUED Channel 7, starting Sunday, May 13th at 7 p.m. Here's another uh, brief sound clip from this series. We're both on. There's a pleasure in it. As well as duty and vexation, the world should be kinder to those of us. Our lives are not without purpose. But mine is small, Aunt Mark. It's so small and so narrow, I feel it closing in on me like walls. I wasn't meant for a life like this. Now. Open up. When when I'm ready. Better times will come. This adaptation of uh, Little Women is uh, coming soon, as I mentioned, to PBS. And uh, my guest for the hour is the writer Heidi Thomas, who adapted the novel for television for this latest adaptation. We're talking about the enduring themes of the novel, which Heidi Thomas calls as complex as Middlemarch. And uh, later in the program, we'll talk about the popular series called The Midwife, on which uh, Heidi Thomas is writer and executive uh, producer. Let's talk about, you mentioned Marmee. Let's talk about Marmee. How did you approach, uh, well, let me phrase it this way. You've read the book several times. I'm sure you went back and reread it uh, as preparation for the adaptation. What what did you find, especially about Marmee? found about Marmee um, when I went back and reread the novel with a view to adapting it for the screen. I must have read it a dozen times in my life at different periods. And I did find the whole novel to be more complex and multi-layered than I remembered it to be. And Marmee became a standout character to me. I think so often she is perceived as being on the edges of the girls' lives. She's the saintly figure to who they turn in times of trouble. But when you reread the novel, you realize Marmee 
has and has had troubles of her own. Um, in addition to the family's financial struggles, she has an absent husband, she has four teenage girls at home, and she freely admits to Joe that she has always had trouble conquering her temper and that she's relied very heavily on her husband to help her come to terms with her own rage. And um, I just thought, why is she always there as this saint when she's a fully rounded woman capable of... Um, certainly a negative perception of herself. She's a very disciplined woman and she does not act out negatively at all. But she is strong and she's complicated and, you know, she has a lot to worry about. And I really wanted to bring all of these things forward, not because I wanted to diminish her role as this incredible mother, but I felt seeing some of her struggles enhanced our, our appreciation of what she does as a character. In in this adaptation, this... Uh series um marmy she, she's very aware of her of her faults her strengths uh and and i think by the time we meet her here she's she's come to terms with this mixture in herself i think she has but she actually refers to her struggle with her temper in the present tense in the text when she's talking to joe and therefore i considered that to be an important part of the role i was creating for the actor um, she says, I still fight every day. I, I, you know, I struggle every day to control my temper. And I think one of the reasons I created the scene where Mommy reacts to Beth's return from the seaside when she is so very ill is I realized that Mommy had been in denial up to a point about how very ill Beth was because she didn't want to lose her. But the outpouring of emotion we see, um, which is referenced in the book but not scripted, the dialogue isn't there, is that of a woman who struggles so hard to keep herself under control, to keep the problems and the terrors of the world at bay. And this is the point where she can no longer control everything. And that's the inherent drama of the character, I think, is she works so hard to protect her daughters, to instruct her daughters, to shape her daughters, to give her daughters opportunities. And then when it becomes impossible to continue to deny that Beth is dying, you see her being completely overwhelmed by everything she's been fighting to keep at bay. So I really don't think that we come to the, uh, you know, from the beginning of the novel, I don't think Mami is a static character. She's a character who continues to experience emotion as her daughters grow. And I think Joe recognizes uh, she, she's got a bit of her mother's temper, right? Yes, absolutely. And that they do have a heart to heart. The scene after the ice skating when Mommy is bathing Joe's cut hand is one of the, I have to say, relatively rare instances when one can lift dialogue from the novel and put it onto the page with very little amendment. It was a very long scene. We couldn't play it verbatim. But um, I think there is a lovely relationship there between Joe and Marmy where they confide in one another. And as the years pass, because time does pass in the course of the novel and the series, you see Joe no longer being the child who goes to her mother for everything, but someone who discusses matters with her on even terms. And that, to my mind, is evidence of truly triumphant parenting when ultimately you have a relationship with your child which is more one of equality mm-hmm. i love the uh, there are a few scenes with uh, joe and her father uh, oh, of course yes. when the father returns a father's a minister and it's, yes. it's sort of a one-on-one ministering right yes absolutely and there's a beautiful phrase in the novel um describing the situation 
existing in the home after Beth died, where Jo starts to go to her father for what we would now call mentoring or one-on-one conversation. But it's referred to in the novel as the Chapel of One. And, um, you know, she is the one congregant. She is the one worshipper who goes into her father's study and it becomes a sort of chapel. And I love that. I think sometimes um, there is a tendency to confuse Louisa Malcott's real experience with the character she puts on the page, and definitely they hugely inspired Little Women, but Bronson Alcott, her father, was transcendentalist and rather wild and unruly, and I am inclined to think that in Mr. March, she created the father she would have liked to have had. He's sort of gentle and reticent and thoughtful, and once he returns from the war, he's actually remarkably present in his daughter's lives. And um, I wanted to I wanted to shine a light on that. I think too often he's pushed to one side in adaptations. In in the book, I mean there 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 is religion, right? Um, and so that's a, that's that's theme that sisters are known for piety. Yeah. Um, how did you deal with that? There there I don't think it's real heavy in the book, but uh, it's there. No, it's an interesting one because um, God is constantly referenced as part of the context of the sisters' daily lives. And yet we never see, to see them go to church. I think it's quite interesting. We don't know what denomination they are, whether they're Episcopalian or even Lutheran, but there is a very, very strong sense of religious faith there. And I was very happy to address it. I was very happy to see the girls getting their Bibles as gifts on Christmas morning, which I think sets the tone for the way they deal with some of their experiences. And also Mommy's beautiful line before she leaves for Washington, when she says, remember, whatever comes to pass, you can never be fatherless under heaven. I find that wonderful. It's, a, it's an incredible thing to say to your daughters when, when it looks as though their earthly father may die within the next couple of days. So um, I was very pleased to be able to enshrine those moments. Um, and, you know, without making it um, a proselytizing drama, because it's not a proselytizing book. Some people, uh, I get mostly these would be men, I guess. <laughs> so would <laughs> would look down on what so-called quote unquote domestic novels. But this is one of the reasons I love the, this kind of novel so much. Uh, it's small things that are really universal and and very big. One one theme, for for example, is the hurts that we uh, that we give each other and the and the forgiveness you know that oh, ha- happens in the family. Yeah, I think. Um, I personally love a domestic novel. I mean, if you know, even in in Madame Bovary, I was always in the kitchen when I was doing my adaptation because um, these, I think, if you're in, in the 19th century, unless you're exceptionally wealthy with a, a whole team of servants, you do, like we all do, have to cross into the kitchen and collect a glass or a cup and things. I loved in um, Little Women in the novel, the girls are always in the kitchen. Mommy makes her own bread. Beth is always washing the dishes. And I very much wanted that to be part of our storytelling because I think that does connect us to the present day. You know, I, I think we are distanced from characters in novels when, you know, they never have to iron a shirt. I love the fact whenever we see those things, Mommy mending stockings, it, it looks like a scene in a modern home. So I, I, find, I find that quite important. I think the other thing to remember um, 
there's a sense, sometimes people refer to little women in particular rather dismissively, that all the girls love each other, that they're all absolute paragons of virtue. But the engine of the novel actually lies in the sister's flaws, in the fact that Joe has a temper, Amy is rather conceited, Meg is discontented, and Beth, as we've discussed, is crippled by her anxiety. It's their flaws that make them interesting, and it's their deficiencies that drive the drama and um therefore i think i don't think it's an underestimated novel because it's so greatly loved but i do think it's an underexplored novel i think it's under investigated and that's why i think at times in places it is very comparable to middlemarch because there's a huge component of humanity within the text that i think was um was rare in the mid-19th century and felt very fresh and new in the 1860s. So perhaps it's that that, to my mind, um, raises it above the common, but the fact that it is domestic keeps it within the common, and I think that's why it is so loved. I, w- I wonder, um, it's been a while since I've you know, gone back to Cranford. Um, you adapted Cranford. I wonder if there... I did. You compare and contrast that world. There are a lot of differences, but some similarities, I would think, between Cranford and the world of Little Women. Yes, I think the interesting thing about Cranford is um, it was originally a five-part drama for PBS and BBC, and then we did a sequel, which was two feature-length adaptations, so a slightly different format. But both Cranford and Return to Cranford were an interweaving and... um, a sort of con-celebration of short stories that were all set in this world of Cranford that was created by Elizabeth Gaskell. So um, in no sense was I adapting a linear novel. In the, a, a lot of the challenge for that was how do we take an element from this short story, Mr. Harrison's Confession, and mix it in with Cranford, which was the longer of the two novellas. Where I think they were very... And Little Women is much more linear, if you will, as an adaptation. But where I think they were very similar is something... I think you've touched upon already in your questions, which is it's about a domestic world. It's about a world where women dominate. Um, It is a world um, that tells the story of small things in a big way. It's not really, Little Women is not a story of the American Civil War. The American Civil War is a backdrop, and Cranford is not the story of the Industrial Revolution, but it's set against the background of the Industrial Revolution and how it destroyed small country communities in Britain at that time. And so these are characters who, because they're women, they they define themselves in relatively small ways. Um, their, Their world, their remit, if you will, is not large. But within that enclosed physical world, until Joe goes to um, New York, the sisters live in Concord, Massachusetts, which is relatively small. But until um, they they break those bonds and start to move outwards, they live in a very small world. But they feel things in a very big way. And I think that is absolutely the case in Cranford and in Little Women. I think that's, those that, that, that's the thing where I think they really connect with one another. Um, you know, they're... Both books move me to tears, and um, I believe both TV dramas have moved people to tears as well. But it's that thing, it's about feeling, you know, living a small life in an incredibly big way. It fills up the whole horizon because it is the life of these people that we love. Um, I'm not sure if this was just me discovering Elizabeth Gaskell at a certain point. I don't know whether she was neglected for a while, just parenthetically, over on Elizabeth Gaskell, the, the author of uh, Cranford, for example, North and South, Wives and Daughters, 
Yes, I think she was out of fashion for a while. So, yes, neglected probably is the case. Um, there are very few female writers writing in the 19th century at all. Obviously, we have Elizabeth Gaskell, um, we have Louisa May Alcott, we have George Eliot, and Jane Austen, of course, in the early part, of, the earlier part of, of the 19th century. And one of the things that I find very striking is I did a degree in English literature at a very good university in the UK. Um, but I studied English literature from 1500 to the present day. And in all my time on that course, I only read one book written by a woman. Women were not featuring on the curriculum. There was a course you could do called Women in Literature, which is where all the female novelists were sort of hoarded together. But I think that attitude perhaps became pervasive beyond the bounds of academia, and women's writing was was dismissed as being lightweight. And yet, if you look at the works of Gaskell or um, George Eliot, um, you know, referencing British novelists in particular, they're actually quite challenging works. So they were sort of falling between two stools. They were assumed to be of no interest to the intelligentsia, but the popular reader would probably find them difficult to engage with because, you know, the, the register of language they use is is completely different to the way we speak now and the issues they were tackling were often, you know, not something that you particularly want to engage with when you're putting your feet up at the end of a busy day. So I, I think um, certainly there was a lovely sense with Cranford that we were bringing a novelist back to a large popular audience. And one of the things I love is when I do an adaptation, there's usually a tie-in book. And when I go into Smith's and see that that book that I've just adapted is now the number one paperback bestseller um, in WH Smith, which is our big popular bookshop, our Barnes & Noble, if you will, I'm like, yes, you know, people are buying this book again and reading this book again. And that, that's a, a, a very humbling feeling and a fantastic feeling. Uh, returning to um, Little Women, uh, just uh, briefly here, I want to talk a little bit about casting. You you had a hand in casting? Um, I always have a hand in casting because mm-hmm. I was executive producer on, on the piece. But I like the director. We had the most wonderful young female director, Vanessa Caswell. She, has a, she was an actor herself um, in the early part of her career, and she, she has a very particular way of working with actors and drawing them out, and her relationship with them is quite intimate. You know, she doesn't call direction across the set. She will go up and sort of talk quietly to them. And I very much didn't want to get in the way of her process. So I watched videotapes, see all the auditions. Once they became significant or if there was an actor who really seemed right for the role, I would see tapes. And I can I could ask if I, if I wanted to for Vanessa to go back and do some more work with an actor and perhaps draw out a different element. But um, I loved her choices and I sort of saw the top two or three choices for each of the sisters. It was completely obvious in every case whom we should choose. And roles... Um, such as Aunt March and Mr. Lawrence and obviously Marmy, go straight out on offer to um, to actors of considerable magnitude. So you have um, Emily Watson, Michael Gambon, Angela Lansbury. So I was very much across those offers because I've worked with um, with Michael Gambon before on Cranford, funnily enough. So yes, I was part of the process, but it was very much helmed and brought to fruition by Vanessa, our director. I want to ask you about uh, casting Joe. Joe is the character, you know, people have favorite characters, but it, as you've uh, you've said elsewhere, 
that uh, people relate to Joe. So first of all, why? How, why do we always relate to Joe? And then uh, how did you go about casting Joe? I think a, a lot of people will say they're Joe because she's the heroine and everybody loves to identify with somebody whose story comes out on top. I think, interestingly with Jo, she is a misfit. She doesn't fit into her clothes. She doesn't fit into the world around her. Sometimes she doesn't quite fit into her family. And I think that's a very powerful draw for a character because I think most people at some point in their lives feel as though they don't fit in. And therefore, she's sort of the heroine for everybody who's ever felt a bit awkward in a social or an emotional or an educational or a financial situation. So I think the lure of Jo is that she's she's a misfit and we all identify with her in that way. Um, in term, It's interesting in terms of casting an actor to play the role simply because Jo is so loved and so identified with by so many readers. There are probably 10 million versions of Jo in the common mind. And, for example, in the book, she's very tall. And we were keen to find a Joe who carried some height, but we weren't going to make it a deal breaker. As it is, Maya Hawke, who played the role, is quite tall. <laughs> so, you know, that was taken care of. Um, and in the book, it's described that Joe has chestnut hair. A lot of people assume that Joe has brown eyes, but the color of her eyes are never specified. So, relatively early on, we disengaged from the notion of physical characteristics. Um, and we were looking for a spirit, I think. We were looking for someone who was bold, someone who was prepared to admit their vulnerability at an inappropriate places. And we were looking for someone um, who had a spiritual energy about her that was going to carry us through the story, especially as the three hours unfold and the focus falls more and more on Jo and her experiences. And we just all felt that Maya had that in spades, as we say in the UK. She's, she is very young. It was her first job, but there was an energy and a brightness and a lightness to her spirit that we really felt was going to pay great dividends to the production. We knew she was going to bring us something no one else could. And what you want of a Jo is... For, as a character, as you want her to be unique and special and driven and energized. And we just felt Maya fitted that bill superbly. Yeah, I think all the casting is uh, very well done. It's, it's, always, it's always wonderful to see Michael Gambon and, and Angela Lansbury and Emily Watson. Nice to see some, some new actors as well. Um, yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I do. My main preoccupation for the past sort of seven years has been a show called Call the Midwife, which is on PBS. And we began um, our very first series with exactly that paradigm. We had four very senior actresses playing um, leading roles, and then four complete ingenues who hadn't done television before. And it was such a rewarding mechanism um, because you're seeing a um, huge variety of womanhood on screen. But also what's lovely is that the older, more senior cast members inevitably pass their expertise on to the younger ones. And so you watch the younger actors really growing because they're in proximity to these great and very established talents. Uh, and I want to move to just a few minutes on Call the Midwife. Um, but before we do, um, anything last on Little Women, um, um, having had this experience? One thing that I would really like to um, publicly praise about Little Women, and I can do this because it's not 
part of my job, is I thought the design and the decor and the costumes were absolutely wonderful. Every time I was sent, in my capacity as executive producer, I was sent more photographs or drawings. I really think our designers did the most wonderful job. The way they recreated Orchard House, the use of fabrics, the styling of the girls' hair, which always looked very natural. I was just absolutely thrilled with it. And I'm I feel incredibly privileged that a script of mine was filmed and made with such extraordinary attention to detail. And almost every key position on the production was occupied by women, which which I love. Susie Cullen was our set designer. Eamon Indominally was um, our costume designer. Susie Liggett produced. Um, it was executive produced by myself and Sophie Gardner. And uh, um, we had female makeup and hair artists as well, which is more usual, but it's not usual to have so many women in leading positions behind the camera. So I was thrilled with that. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are talking with the writer Heidi Thomas for the hour today. Uh, she has adapted the uh, new adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's classic novel, Little Women, uh, which is premiering on PBS. And that three-part adaptation uh, premieres in Utah on KUED Channel 7 starting Sunday, May 13th at 7 p.m. Following a break, we'll talk about the popular series called The Midwife. Next Head Radio Hour listening. So different objects sound like different things. To the universe. Jupiter sounds like pebble was being thrown onto a tin roof. Listening without hearing. I can see the actual drum skin resonate going up and down. Listening. It is hard. To each other. But we all have the capacity to listen in this way. Listen to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we are uh, hearing from Heidi Thomas. Uh, She has adapted uh, many classics for television, such as Cranford to Madame Bovary. There's a new three-part adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's classic novel, Little Women, coming to PBS. Uh, You can view that in Utah on KUD Channel 7, starting Sunday, May 13th at 7 p.m. Heidi Thomas is also writer and executive producer for the popular series called The Midwife. And uh, here's the uh, PBS trailer for season seven. Top, top ladies, let's get going. Call The Midwife is back with a new season. I thought I might open the next session to husbands. Men in a mothercraft class. New surprises. We're getting an OP. Hello. Oh, she's not at all what I expected. And a new midwife. I'm Nurse Anderson. Mother would starts here with a vengeance. I'd like to talk a bit about uh, Called Midwife. It, it's it's become very very popular. You're the writer, executive producer, right? I um, am. Yes. Uh, and and of course you didn't know. Nobody knew it was going to become so popular. I, I, I was reading that you used up all the best stories from the trilogy, the original trilogy in the first series, because you didn't know you are going to have any other series, right? No, we really, honestly, Tom, we really thought um, the, there's three volumes of memoirs written by the wonderful Jennifer Worth, who was a retired midwife writing from a perspective of sort of 40 years after giving up nursing practice. She became a music teacher and concert pianist, very, very bright woman. So she wrote these novels and there was a trilogy, well, no, I say novels, they're a fictionalized account of real experience. So they sort of fall between fact and fiction. But there were three volumes and but the, the middle volume, which was called Shadows of the Workhouse, was um, largely based on the research of Victorian cases and so we couldn't really use them in a drama set in the 1950s. So 
series one and a little bit of series two used up all of the stories from the original memoirs and because series two was partially supplied by the memoirs i i felt i had firm ground on which to stand whilst i started to research stories from other outlets and we always always go to fact and actual history but i researched from archives um we collated a lot of oral testimony from midwives working in that period and members of the public write in with their own stories and experiences um and although we don't replicate that those life stories and experiences on screen we'll often talk to the person and then go and do some research that fleshes it out and we've just started shooting series eight and we have not run out of material it's extraordinary and of course we have this core cast of characters who really provide us with a spine and a backbone um and i think that has been you know their presence has been a key part of the audience loyalty as well because we're watched by um 10 million viewers a week in the uk and that's a sixth of the british population the equivalent would be in America, 50 million people a week watching. Um, so it's just become a sort of become a monster. Uh, you know, we, we all put everybody who works on the show absolutely loves it, and we all put our best energies into it. And it's absolutely thrilling that you know, seven. This is our eighth year of filming now. It's extraordinary. Why do you think? Why do you think it's become a hit? Um, I think it was an. In, uh, the interesting thing is, in the UK, it was an instant hit. It, you know, we got massive figures overnight, unexpectedly, for our very first episode, and we've never lost our audience. And I think it's become more of a hit in America. It was on PBS, but not as part of the masterpiece strand, so it went a little under the radar in the states. And I think the fact that we were sold to Netflix two or three years ago has made a huge difference to our profile in the states, and. It's actually brought new people to the show at a point where our original audience might be starting to disengage and look for something new. So I think that has actually, just in terms of sheer numbers and popularity, I think digital media and our access to a digital platform has helped. But on a more spiritual level, because it is quite a spiritual show, I think we're telling stories about ordinary people's lives. And this goes back to sort of the lure of the domestic in Little Women, for example. People can watch Call the Midwife, and they might be older ladies who gave birth at that time or who were raising families and having experiences in the world at that time to young people who are making life choices um, about careers, perhaps, or starting a family. And I just think the, the stories we tell on Call the Midwife are absolutely universal. You know, birth never dates, death never dates, love is always in fashion somewhere in the world. And those are the stories we tell, birth, death, love, um, and socialized medicine. I think that's the other thing. We very much depict the power and the glory of a socialized medicine system and the impact it can have on the lives of those without means. And I think that is quite an inspiring thing for people to watch, even though the NHS, our National Health Services, struggling greatly at the moment. I think seeing what was once accomplished in its name does give people food for thought. I think that's part of its power in the UK, certainly. Do you think that uh, translates? People think about that, uh, maybe translate over to the our very fierce debates over you know, the medical system I, here. I, honest, I honestly don't know, Tom, because I've not experienced the American healthcare system from, from inside myself. Uh, but what I do think is there is something about if you take it, if you remove 
that from its political context. What we are telling is stories about people being nice to each other. And that resonates internationally. You know, time and time again, we get fan mail from the US, which doesn't really comment on the socialized healthcare we're offering, but it does comment on the extent to which people support other people. And that might be in the event of a bereavement or impoverishment or, you know, a house fire. We showed what happens when a pregnant woman loses both her husband and her home and has a bad run of luck in series seven. That episode's already been shown in the US and people were moved to tears by it. And that's nothing to do with political systems. It's just to do with how we look out for one another as human beings. There, there's a full range of issues, uh, domestic violence, uh, parenting as a disabled person. Mm. One, one series included uh, uh, scenes about female genital mutilation. Mm, it did. Um, we just, it's part of the landscape. It's mm-hmm. part of the stories that um, I think we still tell each other as members of, fellow members of society now. And certainly at that time, it was, it was a new issue because we had new communities um, coming into Britain from abroad. The Somali community was featured there. And I think one thing called the Midwife has done o- over time, I think because we're confident in our very large following and our very responsive audience, is when we're not afraid we're not afraid to tackle taboos. We're not afraid to bring things out into the open. Female genital mutilation was was a big story for us, and we researched it very carefully. But that episode is now used as part of a teaching package by police forces in parts of the British Isles where young girls are at risk of genital mutilation. So I I consider that to be a huge plus. Um, I come from, during my upbringing, I had a severely disabled younger brother, and that sort of alerts me to certain types of story and um but you know you look at female genital mutilation that was a big wow moment because it seemed such a bold thing for us to be tackling but i'm i was just as delighted that in series five we were able to talk about how urinary incontinence can affect women who've had a number of children and that was a huge taboo because nobody talks about it but there were kind of follow-up radio programs and it created a dialogue that might not otherwise have happened Mm. even if it's as simple as one woman going to her primary care physician saying i've been suffering in silence with incontinence for you know 18 years and finally being bold enough to go and get help that's a fantastic thing but it does create public dialogue sometimes around issues that were not thought to be they were either thought to be distasteful or of no interest to the general public because they only affected women you are obviously within the series you're writing um complex female characters mostly yeah and uh, that that i think attracts actresses who uh or, or maybe relieved to, in some cases to, to find uh, you know a, a full range of uh, wonderful characters. Uh, uh, maybe talk a little bit about that. What is what does that mean to you to to be writing for, for so many strong female voices? Um, well, it's never occurred to me to do anything else because these are the you know going right back to Cranford and prior to that I had a period set drama series called Lilies, which was based on the life of my grandmother and her sisters. Um, in the immediate aftermath of World War One, um, I love telling those sort of stories, and my work has always found an audience. I think that where there is a real disconnect is there is an assumption at large in society that people are not interested in stories about women, and yet Call the Midwife has been consistently the most watched drama on British television, beating Downton Abbey at times um, for 
seven years now. That suggests there is people are not you know, people are interested in stories about women. Therefore, why do why is it assumed we are not? I mean, Call the Midwife gets far greater um, audience numbers in the UK than. Um, you know, crime dramas, rape dramas, murder dramas. So you've got to look at that aspect of it. And I think, um, so there, there is that sort of assumption. And also there, there is another trope, which is there are no roles for older women. Well, every time we try and offer a role to an older woman actress, um, we, we struggle for her to, you know, we, we say to her, we offer the part and say, would you like to play this role? And they say, well, I'll see if I can fit you in because they're so busy. So I think there's another story out there that's not being told. Just as there is an assumption nobody wants dramas about women, but hey, 10 million people watch one every week. And there is also an assumption that, um, you know, older female actors are sitting there on the subs bench waiting for a gig and they're all rushed off their feet with work. So I think what we perhaps need to do is embrace and accept and celebrate the fact that Everybody wants to see stories about women, and most female actors are consistently employed, perhaps more than you imagine they might be. So it's all positives from my point of view, but there again, I work up, I create and write the sort of shows where those things are, are central. So I think probably I, well, certainly I have to accept that I possibly, with my shows, live in a bit of a bubble, and there is work to be done out there to make sure other shows um, embrace the possibilities for women as well. You've uh, you've uh, written, you say, my mantra is, we're not a soap, we're a medical drama. Oh, I, yes, I, called I, midwife, absolutely. <laughs> and I, 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 I have to say, uh, I've never thought that this was anywhere close to a soap when I've watched uh, Call the Midwife. Um, but I guess that, is, no, is that a concern that you have? Where it comes from, I think, Tom. It's something we say to ourselves, um, you know, we're in the scripting room, if you will. We we work on the British system, so we don't have a writer's room as such. But when I sit down with Annie Tricklebank, who's my producer on Call the Midwife, who knows the show at least as well as I do, and sometimes better, um, I think what we we always say to ourselves, this is not a soap, because we don't want it to be a show that's purely about the personal lives of the characters. And it would be very easy for that to happen. I think sometimes we have guest writers who want it to be all about the regular characters and their love affairs and things like that. And I think that's how we would run into the sand very quickly. I think what keeps us going is, as a medical drama, we always have one or usually two, in actual fact, very clear cases of the week. One of them will always be about midwifery and the other will be about socialised medicine in some way. Um, perhaps focusing on the work of a primary care physician. It might be about vaccination or an epidemic or an accident or something. And because we have that very strong connection to fact and to stories of the week, I think that's how we've not ended up feeling stale. Um, I think if it was all about the regular characters and their, their woes and their troubles, people would have got bored of it by now because there wouldn't be enough room for the more muscular storytelling we can do if we stay focused on... Um, on, on medicine. Will will Call the Midwife just keep going and going? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, we were already talking about this yesterday. We are definitely commissioned up to season nine, which we would film next year. And um, I think... We all feel we could continue, but what we need to do is sit down and make sure we can continue to make this show and keep standards as high as we've kept them for eight or nine years. That's much more important to us than sort of endlessly going on into the future and maybe the standard falling somewhat. But I think with the team 
that we have put together, the sheer dedication and the attention to detail and the commitment from our core cast, I believe we could go on. Um, and I also know that we would all mutually look each other in the eye and say, do you know what? It's time to shut up shop. Let's leave on a high. I think we would want to leave on a high. So I don't see us continuing for another 10 years, but I certainly see us continuing for another two or three. Mm. I think uh, some people don't know. I didn't know until I started researching. Uh, your husband in real life, Stephen McGann, oh, plays Turner. Yes, I'm married Dr. To Dr. Turner. Turner. You're married to I'm Dr. Turner. Turner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, n- nice, nice to oh, uh, have your husband on the show. You see, we met doing um, a theater show together when we were in our early 20s. It was a play I'd written, and he was cast in the lead. And we didn't get together as a couple for another two or three years. I think we were in our mid-20s, babies, really. Um, but I loved working with him as an actor. I think he has a beautiful energy, and I love the way he paints a character. He has wonderful, delicate facial expressions, and he always researches. So we worked together, having met on a theater show, we worked together on and off for over the next couple of years. But the minute we became an item, nobody would let me put him in my shows anymore. They'd say, oh, you just want him in your show because he's your boyfriend, your fiancé, your husband, the father of your son. You know, it went on for years. So it was, we went 20-odd years without working together. And it was always a quiet source of sadness. Um, but then there was a Dr. Turner in Series 1 was a very, very small role. And at the back of our minds, we always thought, well, if we did get a second season, we would want to, you know, this was the only thought we had about moving forward. We would want to expand on the the Doctor character. And we knew that the kind of actors who are prepared to accept a very small role, I mean, he's only in, sort of, I think he was in 10 scenes in the first series, um, that they weren't likely to be able to carry the role later. So he was offered the part of Dr. Turner and accepted, which was fantastic. And then, uh, but he insisted on auditioning, which I thought was very, very sweet. He said, no, no, no. He said, I don't want anybody to think I've been handed this on a plate. So he did audition. And, um, you know, he's been playing the role and it's grown and he's got an on-screen wife and children. And, you know, Tom, it's fantastic. I wonder sometimes if our son, when he comes home from university, finds it a bit boring because <laughs> there, there are days when it's all we talk about. But it's like the family business now. I, you know, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. And I'm sure when called midwife is over, if I ever try to put him in anything of mine ever again, people will say, oh, she can't work with him. He, he's in everything she does. But it's just been one series, really. <laughs> Well, we've uh, reached the end of our time. Uh, yes, it's we been, have. It's been, been an hour. Lovely. It's Thank so you. nice to talk to you. Our thanks to uh, Heidi Thomas. Uh, pleasant conversation there. And uh, Heidi Thomas wrote a new three-part adaptation of Louise May Alcott's uh, classic novel, Little Women. You can watch that on KUED Channel 7 starting Sunday, May 13th at 7 p.m. And you can also uh, watch Call the Midwife, also on Channel 7. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org.